podcast from Crew and Mike is, I think it's really cool and um, that is what I wanted to say. Two and a mic. I'll keep the intro short because this episode was really pushing the one-hour boundary and actually breaks through it, so I apologize for that. Anyway, Chris and I jump into topics that include Chris's catering business in Berlin, Christmas, Pele, NFL injuries, the US unjustice system, and the farce of choosing a Republican speaker in 15 or so short steps. Anyway, thanks, Chris, again for your time and enjoy. Chris, it's good to have you back. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah. All right. So we're kind of going to start this new sort of series concept where uh, we're going to call it the story from the other side. Uh, so basically, these are like uh, issues or tales um, or news items um, from the other side of the Atlantic. But at the same time, we'll, we'll sort of check in with how you're doing uh, like an American in Berlin um and, and what's going on so um as we've just come through the the festive period um you you were quite busy i think uh yeah i was pretty busy like not too busy maybe three or four days th through the holidays but um I, I i wanted to make some money it's a good time of year and uh it was good but not not too crazy it was just good to work and and uh get some satisfaction and making some food for some people and some caterings and you know they were happy and i think that's part of my uh job and what i Wait. do for, well, for a living so yeah and, and um yeah you got some really good feedback from people they were like hey do you do this during the year too and stuff so i mean that must be really sort of rewarding for you to hear isn't it yeah as i'm trying to transition the business into um more of like catering and cooking and kind of build up products that we can produce. Um, so that's what I am slowly trying to introduce to the my you know clientele and customers. So I think it was a good start. Uh, so now it's just kind of moving forward and keep doing and pushing it and trying to get more different avenues of revenue is the goal right now. Mm, okay. All right. And um, are you going to sort of focus a little bit on uh, publicity or is it like word of mouth? And uh, no, I've been trying to. Uh, so I, I paid a friend who's like a social media manager to kind of update my social media, um, you know, to have the same color themes. And I actually want to start cooking, doing more cooking tutorials or just like uh, recipes, not like super tutorial, but just like kind of TikToks quick videos um, kind of highlighting like Southern American cooking uh, and these classic recipes and maybe some of the history behind them. Um, I was back with my cousins in Atlanta and I kind of asked a couple of them, like, what are the classic Southern dishes? I mean, I grew up in the South a bit, but DC and Maryland, it, it's right on the borderline. Mm. So we do get 
most of that you know good cuisine in the south and that that style um but we we have a little bit more like uh east coast like northwest you know we get i mean northeast i'm sorry um with the chesapeake bay a lot of seafood and fish and crabs so uh the cuisine i grew up is more that way but the south you know you have a little bit more fried chicken and collard greens and uh you know pork uh what's it pork chops mothered pork chops and potato salad and all this stuff so it's good to it's i mean it's interesting actually to see like how how much has changed and a lot of it has to do with the great migration after you know slavery and civil rights and jim crow and uh when the black people's kind of black people kind of exited the south and jim crow laws and slavery moved to the northern cities they brought some of these uh cuisines and techniques of cooking but then they were using uh different products what was based locally in those areas of chicago and new york and uh dc philadelphia and the inspiration they had around those parts you know with other immigrants and stuff that um you didn't really have in the deep south Mm. when i lived in italy in uh parma i i was kind of told about the the sort of history of um, some of their wonderful recipes that they have, whether that is capelletti or some of the other kinds um, of pasta dishes. And, you know, essentially it was a very similar story. You'd have the the, the, the sort of servants or the poor people um, in the area had to be really creative with the, the kind of food that they could cook, because obviously they wanted to eat food which tasted nice, um, but they couldn't afford all of these steaks and chicken and, you know, other kinds of meat dishes. So they had to get really creative with vegetables, with sauces, with the pasta. Um, and that's how a lot of these things were essentially created, you know, taking a bit from this and a bit from that and a bit from that. Um, and these are now wonderful dishes which you can eat um, and which you know are quite expensive now. Um, but originally that wasn't the case. Um, now, I remember you so you sent me a, a story about um, a, a New York kind of uh, sandwich or a burger, which um, was supposed to be like a five dollar burger um, in the original uh, restaurant where or diner that it was created. But you could walk around the corner um, where a slightly more um, fashionable uh, business has basically put the price up uh, to fifteen dollars um, for a sort of copy of that. So it's really interesting how over time. Um, what was once considered a dish for poor people has sort of been taken over and upgraded um, and uh, yeah, made for profit for uh, you know, a slightly more swanky clientele. Yeah, it's very interesting, especially if you look, you can pay, I mean, I guess in any culture, you can see from the wealthier to the less fortunate, their cuisine was different, but especially in the US where you had like slavery and you know, the African-Americans community only had, you know, could only afford or only given, you know, certain products and what you, they were able to use different techniques to make it taste good, you know. And that's actually, you know, super talented you know, around the world. You see where people are using stuff that vegetables, especially they're inexpensive and making them taste good or not so uh, pleasant parts of the animal. Yeah. Well, that's the, the creativity is um, it's unfair to say perhaps forced upon you because creativity has to exist in the first place for it to be able to come out. But, you know, when people are kind of challenged to be, be more creative, um, then they create those opportunities for themselves in which they can be. Um, and, and the results are you know very clear throughout history. 
Um, we're being pushed in many societies nowadays to also be more creative, whether that's through sort of saving energy, whether that's through keeping warm um, or finding other kinds of solutions in these days. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, this, we shouldn't have to be creative to satisfy certain needs, but uh, that's the way of our Western societies at the moment. Um, cool. OK, um, so we'll keep an eye out. Um, maybe I can also add some of your social media um, channels uh, in the, the podcast uh, description later on. So I'll make sure I've got all of that. I don't have your TikTok. I'm, I'm not on TikTok, so that's probably why. But uh, if you've got a TikTok channel as well. Um, yeah, I so. opened one, but I haven't really started with my uh, stuff yet. But. Okay. All right. So we can wait on the, the TikTok, but um, yeah, your other uh, sort of social media presence we can we can highlight. All right. Um, anything else you want to say on your um, festive season production? No. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting, Berlin. I spent a couple of years here now uh, around Christmas, and it's, it's unbelievable how empty the city gets for being a capital city. And a in the country like you know, one of the most populous countries in Europe, uh, to be so empty, it just really shows you how many people are like you know transient and not from here. But it's just because uh, like you know, think about New York and other big cities. People go to these cities for holidays to celebrate. It seems like everybody leaves Berlin <laughs> on the holidays. Yeah, I mean, do you mean specifically New Year's? No, like Christmas. I mean, just the time between Christmas uh, okay. and Christmas. Like, you know, Christmas uh, Eve and Christmas, it's like everything's closed. You know, restaurants, bars, uh, mm. they all close from the 22nd to the 4th and 3rd. And like in the U.S., like this never would happen. Like people would close like Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Um, mm. And they might close like New Year's Day or most of the time, like, I mean, it's never seen it like this. I guess it's maybe people take the holidays more serious and that's time off. Or I think it's a lot of it has to do with it's just not economically uh, smart to stay open because there's you know so many people aren't from Berlin and they go home to their other cities and countries uh, around Germany and the world. So it's just very interesting. I guess it's just so many. Or, and also maybe there's a, you know, the population of uh, people who don't celebrate Christmas as well. Well, they, they would theoretically more likely be out and about and uh, enjoying themselves. Um, I, I find that the shops which continue to operate until sort of half day on Christmas Eve, um, obviously they're the ones which know that people are going to pop in. Um, so these would be like uh, butchers, supermarkets. You know, maybe some you know, quite popular toy shops and so on. But otherwise, you know, people know that if it's not food related, essentially nobody's going to come in. Um, and on the 24th, 25th and 26th, they're also sort of three days of family uh, get togethers, mainly in, in at least in Berlin, from from the families that I'm aware of. Um, um, this is essentially what they try to do. Actually, it's it's very interesting because I I, I was kind of told by um, a friend that Christmas advertising is really one dimensional. It's very much your sort of you know your happy couple, your kids, the families all coming together. 
Um, but there's very little variation to the advertising. So as in there are lots of people who don't perhaps celebrate Christmas. There are lots of people who don't perhaps have families. There are lots of people who are nowadays single or they just live in a sort of shared uh, accommodation with other people. Um, and the traditional marketing campaigns and advertising campaigns don't look at these other um, sort of social mixes. And uh, that, that's quite an interesting perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's based off of this, you know, this well, historically off this religious holiday based, you know, with family and uh, celebrate and and for the marketers, that's the best way to to make money to sell to, you know, to sell this 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 dream, this idea of Christmas, you know, and being together and eating dinner and buying presents and celebrating, and you know, how many people are actually in this ideal situation, you know what I mean? I would like to see the numbers on that. Yeah, it would be uh, it would be interesting to see, and, and also to see why um, you know, it, it's become such a, a large commercial thing as well. Um, considering there is still such an emphasis on the the religious significance of Christmas, um, but that doesn't mean that in any way it is less commercial than in other countries. It's very commercialized in in Germany too, and in fact, from from September on. Uh, you can start seeing, you know, Christmas oh, products yeah. in the shops. It's crazy. I mean, I've actually now, but think about it. I've spent Christmas in probably four different countries, maybe. Mm. I've spent Christmas in the U.S., Germany, Vietnam, and Sweden. Okay, and which obviously you know, your experiences of the U.S. are going to be sort of. Uh, a lot more dominant than your other experiences, but uh, were they significantly different? Well, the U.S. is just mayhem when it comes to uh, the whole shopping thing, you know, the presence and the traffic you see outside malls. I know where I grew up, the mall would have a line just to get to the parking lot to park. You know what I mean? And that would take you 30 or 40 minutes. And you would and you would you would know, like, don't go by the mall. To, you know, in the next couple of days, because it's just too crazy. And I mean, this is even on like the 22nd, 23rd, maybe even, you know, even before, like say like the 21st or the 22nd on a Saturday or a Sunday. I mean, it's got to be crazy, you know. Um, but, but this is but this is before like uh, you know, these huge online retailers, or are you talking about even in recent years? No, I mean, people are. I mean, re, I mean recent year i mean last last 10 years i guess okay i think yeah people are ordering a lot more online like i know some of my family in the u.s is doing a lot of ordering on like black friday because of the deals and they can just order everything and if you have like five or six people you need to get presents for you can uh buy a bunch of different stuff shoes and stuff on sale and come straight to your house in a couple of days mm. and you're ready to go but uh if, if i look at like germany um yeah, I, I saw people out shopping. I think the people who have a little bit more fun, extra funds are definitely shopping more. But I think it's more about getting together with family and having dinner. This type of thing is very important um, as well here. But I wouldn't say it's that far away from the U.S. Um, with like the kind of buying stuff and people going out. Uh, I think the, the markets are very lovely here. That's the nicest part about it. 
The and Christmas markets, yeah. Yeah, and Vietnam, it was like two or three years ago I was there. I don't remember much, you know what I mean? I don't think it was very, it wasn't as westernized, you know, as it is, you know, in the other two places. And then in like in Sweden, um, it's it's all about the dinner. And I don't even think my friend, like they even bought gifts, <laughs> you know? Hmm. I think they had dinner and drinks and they had a couple, they like, they watched like some, some like famous cartoon at night. Everybody, like everybody watches, I forget what it is, um, the cartoon. And then they have dinner and everybody has the same type of dinner. And then people go out on the 25th and get drunk. Um, but you know, it was very like traditional and nice, you know, but in the U S like you can't even get into some people's houses. They have so many gifts. Yeah, I mean the it's the commercialization is crazy, isn't it? In, in uh, I mean, par- some parents, I mean, I mean, dude, I mean, some parents are spending like a couple thousand dollars on the kids, just one kid, buying a new laptop, buying new iPads, you know, buying uh, some people buy kids cars, like it's 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 crazy. Like we, if you didn't come back to school on that following Monday after the first and didn't have a new Xbox or a new iPad, then like you felt left out. You didn't feel cool enough. So like most parents do it so their kid doesn't attack, you know, attack them and, and get sad and freak out. <laughs> yeah, I, I follow a lot of uh, different um, either psychology or medical channels um, and professionals on, on Twitter. And um, there were a few, quite a few teachers too, for obvious reasons. and. Um, they said, you know, when the kids come back in the new year, whatever you do, you don't ask them questions about what did you do over the holidays? Did you go on holiday? Did you did you receive this present or that? Because a you don't necessarily know whether or not the kid celebrates Christmas. Um, but on the other hand, um, for the exact reasons that you said, you know, there are some families who simply cannot compete. They simply don't have the money. To be able to put either the kind of food on the table, which everybody says, oh, I had a great turkey dinner. I had this. These dinners cost a lot of money. Um, And so we can't expect, especially in this kind of uh, period of time where there is an energy crisis, there's a cost of living crisis, um, that people can simply cater for these kinds of uh, special occasions with the amount of money that they have. Uh, and so, you know, teachers that have been sort of directed away from talking too much about you know, these uh, festive periods for that reason. I mean, it shouldn't have to be about what you got or where you went, should it, really? No, it shouldn't at all. I used to see it when I coached basketball, and I coached basketball at the school that I think the tuition was like 25000 a year from, from Kita up to, you know, a senior in high school. And very nice school, very... Um, very liberal school. Um, like they called the teachers by their first names and they didn't have uniforms, but it was a private school. And you would see that they let, they would give scholarships to kids who were less fortunate. Um, you know, mostly black kids, uh, or some Hispanic kids, um, who would apply for scholarships and they would let them come because they want to have a kind of a mix in their, um, you know, in their, in their school, whatever their community. And, uh, so, yeah, so you see these kids come back after a uh, break and we, you know, coach basketballs in the winter. So we come back and then some kids would have like, you know, new, new pair of shoes, new iPods, AirPods and 
And then you see the kid that kind of has the single mom who works two jobs and they still have the same stuff. And or their or their mom would spend all the money she has to make sure that the kid got new basketball shoes and iPods, AirPods, and she's gonna be broke for the next two months paying off credit card bills just so her kid can feel part of like this community, you know what I mean? Of like, cause they're all showing it off, you know, from even when we were like nine years old, eight years old, look what I got, look what I got. You know what I mean? It's, I don't miss that part. And I, and sadly I stopped really buying that many gifts. I don't, I didn't think I bought, bought any gifts this year. Um, cause I just don't, I just don't, I don't, I don't like this whole thing. It's, Hmm. being disappointed i mean i remember i used to get disappointed with my mom or my dad because i didn't get something i wanted instead of just being happy that we were going to have breakfast and be together and now i don't have my parents and you know, i wish i would do anything to have christmas again but i think about when i was younger and i was you know mad because i didn't get the pair of shoes i wanted or a laptop or an xbox and it's just like you, know, you lose sight of the whole the whole big picture yeah um i mean this is though you can't blame the kids can you for this this is the kind of world which the the adults have created exactly um and and you and i i keep on seeing i look at these people and i say okay you know fair enough if you've got money then obviously you want to be able to treat your kids you want to be able to look after them and that's that's kind of like the some of the developmental um the natural developmental approach um, that people have and that's fair enough of course um but you, it shouldn't be done in a way where um, you, you come to school and it's kind of thrown into the faces of, of less fortunate kids and saying, yeah, look, I got this. What do you have? Um, because that sense of uh, entitlement that uh, you know, the richer kids have, um, it, it, can, it can lead to complications later on in life for um, their, you know, in some ways, a lack of perception lack of ability to empathize and on the other hand other other kids are you know basically told you're not good enough um and, and they always have to struggle with their inner demons uh, to be able to overcome um you know, any kind of disadvantages that they face in society anyway um and, and that just makes it doubly uh, difficult for them to achieve yeah totally. yeah yeah anyway okay all right um yeah hopefully uh, at some point society will um manage to reboot itself but uh, I, I won't hold my breath on that considering how things are but anyway we're supposed to be talking about other issues on the other side of the atlantic so um yeah this week we um we saw uh, a great put to rest um, and obviously uh, by this i'm referring to pele um for me the greatest ever footballer, um, as in for you, you would say soccer player, but uh, I I can't um, allow myself to use that term. So for me, the greatest ever football player, there's no, as in head and shoulders above anybody else um, who is put forward for this particular uh, title. Where do you see Pele uh, in your pantheon? Uh, I think he is the greatest player of all time. I mean, no other player has won three World Cups. Uh, his playing career spanned over 20 years. He played 56 to 77. Um, I think he globalized the game. Right? Mm. Yeah. 
which is like it was huge. I mean, I don't think it would. Do you think it would be as big if it wasn't for Pele and you know bringing it to South America and the U.S. and because my you know Shirley, um, Pele went to her son's school in the 70s or early 80s. Uh, Andrew Young, you know, who was like you know one of King's right hand men, he was also the mayor of Atlanta and also uh, the UN ambassador, the U.S. Um, he got Pele to come to Atlanta and she has, she posted pictures of my cousin Cabral and all his friends at school with Pele. <laughs> wow. So, you know, like this guy was, you know, I mean, I mean, also being the best player, but also just viewing, um, you know, just way he spread the game and, uh, and I think I'm looking at, I'm looking at his, uh, he beat Sweden, Chile, and Mexico. Which, if you look at it now, those aren't the, the three best uh, footballing nations in the world. But um, I think I don't I don't know what was going on with everybody else at this point. Um, but ever since I was a kid, it was Pele, 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 Pele. You know, and uh, I think that's all Americans knew. But he also he played in New York, right? The Cosmos. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's I think that's that was big, and uh, that might that. Because that's when in the 80s is when Americans started, kids started to play soccer. Um, and it's 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 funny because even now, I think it's the, it's the first sport every American plays. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's not the most pop, you know, popular sport, but it's the first sport that we all play at age. I mean, my mom coached my team with my buddy Pete, who I still am friends with. And his mom and my mom were the coach of our team. He was co-ed and we were four years old. Because I guess like basketball, you're too small to play. Um, American football is too physical at that point. And I mean, what else can you play? What's else is simple enough just to run around and kick a ball around and at this goal and that goal, you know? Mm. And you know, we would all run around in these big herds. <laughs> you know, everybody's around the ball. <laughs> yeah, that's always great to see with the kids who play. So there's no, there's no notion of positioning. You know, there's. Uh, yeah, there's a big beehive following the ball around. Yeah, the yeah. And uh, I remember at four years old playing, and my brother played, and my brother was eight years old than me, so he was like 12, 13, and he was pretty good actually. He grew up because we had grown up like right in D.C., and there was a big African and Latino community. Um, so he was playing against, you know, Hispanic players, African players who were very skilled, who their who their family loves, you know, they they've been playing their whole lives, you know. What I mean, so it was part of their family, their dad to play, their cousins, whatever. So they were playing as young kids, and they had skills, and they were he. So he was put into this group, and um was playing with these, you know, these highly skilled players. And then when we, my parents got uh, divorced, my mom moved to Maryland, which was more suburbia, white suburbia, actually. Um, and my brother was, we were going to private schools and my brother was like one of the only black kids and he's playing uh, these private school leagues and he was dominating, you know, because he had played at a higher level, at a faster pace level, more physical level um, in DC, you know, and like in the streets or in the park. And then in these leagues, we had kids from all over, you know, you know, parents were like, you know, kids were speaking, you know, Spanish. And I remember going as a kid and being like, wow. And then when he moved out, and I mean, I remember he was the leading scorer in our county in uh, his senior year. <clears throat> and my dad was all county player as well back in 68, 69, 70. Um, and his actually my dad's school, he was the first class to go to in, uh, integrated school. 
Oh, wow. Okay. And this was, uh, my dad, dad was 72, I think, in my class, or 71. So, yeah, so my dad went to high school in the 68, and that was the first year, I guess, they were integrated. So, yeah, and he was an all-county soccer player, played lacrosse. And then he went to uh, Howard University and studied zoology. But, yeah, I mean, and it's funny because uh, one of the a girl I went to high school with, uh, she – my, I, I don't know what happened. I said something or my, oh, she said something to uh, her dad about me or something and said my last name. I'm going to hang out with Haskins or something. And he was like, Haskins is his dad, Jeff Haskins. And she was and he was and she came and asked me. And I was like, yeah. And I asked my dad. He goes, oh, man, uh, I think it was like Steve Carr or something. He's like, oh, man, that was that's my that was my buddy back in high school. Blah, blah, blah. And, and, and she's and her dad said the same thing. He's like, oh, man, yeah, we were buds back in high school and then i'm going to high school with her with his daughter you know so it was pretty cool um but yeah let's not get off topic but yeah yeah so i think pele also spread the game uh internationally um uh, from these things and um yeah i mean I, I need to read more about him i just you just you just hear like you know i've watched some videos um he's very talented and I heard they're going to put his feet into a museum. <laughs> I don't know if that's real. That might have been fake news. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I'd want to see that. But uh, uh, the picture of him, and they just look tattered. Mm-hmm. God. Um, so what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, well, like I kind of said earlier on, I mean, for me, he he was the the ultimate. Um, Hold on. Look at this stat. He's played 700 games. And guess how many goals he has? One minute. That's that's a different stat to what I've seen because I I saw that he played 1,300 games, including everything. And all right, this is this is including. All right, well, this is including Brazil, but this is saying from Santos and Cosmos he played seven. Okay. All right, yeah. So he, there's a lot more than that because uh, I think he played also for some some other teams which were perhaps not necessarily recorded professionally. But across all of the games that he played, I think which were about 1,300, he scored almost 1,200 goals. Yeah, it says like 60. It says 700 games, 655 goals. So he pretty much scored every game he played. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as, as in, it's it's a ridiculous talent. See, the thing is. Nowadays, people look at uh, Messi and Ronaldo and say these guys are the best of all time. But I mean, okay, Messi and Ronaldo are perhaps the best of their generation. But how much better than the rest of their generation are they? Uh, And I would imagine that the the percentages are okay. This is very very subjective, but the percentages are perhaps not that great. Whereas if you look at Pele um, and how much better he was uh, than his generation, um, I, I think there is a huge difference. Uh, and what that says to me was that Pele had a freakish talent. Um, you know, his his superiority and his in of talent within the game was so great that if he had been playing in the modern day with modern scientific um, knowledge, um, with the training methodologies, yeah, you know, he would be just an absolute beast of a player he'd, he'd probably be scoring two goals a game no one would be able to stop him and i know but, this is that this do you is, actually what, agree with that with like with i i mean because they they bring this up a lot with like jordan and lebron mm. and magic and bird that the guys who were playing and you, you watch the videos i've watched some of these older games the guys just aren't as strong as as athletic 
they don't have the technology um, that mm. they are given now in the um, you know, type of workouts and blah, blah, blah. Do you think, I mean, obviously the players weren't as talented as they are now when he was playing, but are you saying that his talent was so good that he would be even more talented with the. Uh, yeah, the absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think we also have to look at the kinds of the, the characters behind the, the players. Yeah. Um, for example, Michael Jordan, you know, when you when you watch, you know, The Last Dance, the documentary, you know, when he first goes into that Chicago Bulls team, you know, these guys, when they're on the road, they're gambling, okay, which he, he liked to gamble too, but they're drinking, they're taking drugs, and he's like, no, no, yeah. Um, if you're the kind of person who's going to abuse your body by drinking and taking drugs, then you're not going to stay at the top for a significant period of time. At some point, that starts to take its toll. Um, yeah, this is one of the reasons why I stopped smoking three and a half years ago. And, you know, as it is, it's hard for me to play against people 10 years, 15 years younger than me. But if I'm smoking at the same time, um, you know, after 10 minutes, you know, I'm heaving. Um, and, and so I had to stop that completely <coughs> to, yeah. to be able to, you know, in some way, keep just keep running, let alone actually competing with the guys. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that there are, you know, if you are a, a, an elite af- athlete and you have a certain kind of talent, a certain kind of ability, you've got to respect your body and give it an opportunity of competing uh, for a sustained period of time. Michael Jordan uh, did that. Um, and, and, and I think clearly Pele was able to do that. And the only reason was, was because you know, he understood to be able to do what I do, I need to look after my body. And I think a lot of players of his generation, they wouldn't do that. I mean, I remember I played, I, know, I didn't play, but I, I worked um, at a sports shop in Shepherd's Bush in London. Um, and, and I was told by the manager there that, um, you know, in the 80s, the players, the professional players from QPR, because uh, Loftus Road was just around the back um, of where I worked, um, the professional players used to go to the pub in the morning and have a couple of beers with the fans. And then about two hours before kickoff, they'd say, sorry, guys, we've got to go to the stadium and, and, and change and do our warm-up. Um, yeah, and, and that's the kind of culture that there existed in professional football in the UK at the time. Um, and this is you know, 20 years after Pele, if not more. And, and you think, you know, did Pele do that? Was he you know, sort of an alcoholic? Um, I, I'm not sure he could have played at that level. If, if he had been. Yeah. I mean, uh, you can look back at their picture. The guy, some guys used to smoke at halftime. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, coaches having a, a cigarette on the sidelines while they're watching the game. Um, yeah, like Red, Red Arbach, you know, he used to smoke a cigar during the game, the Celtics. They used to smoke in the gym. So there'd yeah. be a lot of smoke in the top <laughs> of the arena. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, we, playing professional basketball in, a, in a, a gym that they're smoking cigars. Oh, man, that's horrible. I mean, but as you know, I even mentioned, you know, Jordan. I mean, we've seen Jordan in his some of his interviews and he's got this huge cigar in his mouth. So, you know, he smoked at least cigars um, even while he was a player. But, uh, um, you know, just to say that, uh, OK, you, you can't uh, put them all in the same kind of uh, category, but. Um, yeah, now for, for me, where, where if I'm running and my sort of my, my lung capacity is therefore expanded from the effort, 
Um, if you walk past somebody who's smoking and you breathe it in, ah, oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I think Pele is. There'll never be another Pele. Um, especially the like humanitarian aspect of it. Some and also the player like to win three World Cups is tremendous. Yeah. Um, you know, look how hard it is just for some one player to like like a player like Messi just to win one. Um, yeah, and and um, yeah, I'm not going to suggest that he had a helping hand, but uh, let's just say that uh, destiny kind of uh, um, created a possibility where he was able to go on and do things. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, if you think about it, like the, I mean, a lot of people are saying this. Um, I don't think people just laid the teams laid down for him, but yeah, oh. maybe some of the refereeing and some of the things. But I think also for FIFA, it was the only thing they could do to cover up, you know, the World Cup, really, <laughs> to make it like people forget all the other stuff around it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and this is why I don't want to stress my opinion on this too much because I didn't watch the games, so therefore I can't claim to have seen. Um, any of these bad decisions um, or any of these penalties, which were clearly not penalties. Yeah, they gave like six or something. Yeah, maybe there was a record set for the number of penalties that they were given. I don't know. Um, I'm only going by what the journalists reported uh, in some of the games and some of the headlines where people were just saying that's blatantly not a penalty. Um, and yet, you know, what, what's VAR for if if it's going to let these, these sort of uh, you know, incorrect decisions stand? But um, anyway, but also, it's I mean, also like at the end of the game, like there was plays made, there were saves made, there was he scored, you mm. know, they, you know, they still scored uh, when it counted. After, you know, but you know, if you did you read this story about uh, the U.S. men's soccer team that's going on now? No. So you know who like Claudia Reyna is? Yeah. So he was a U.S. player, and the coach also played. Uh, U.S. national team, Berg Berghalter, and uh, he also coached a, a team in Sweden, a Hammer B, which is the first division team in Sweden. Um, but so him and Reina play together. But his son Gio Reina plays for Dortmund, and he's like 19 or 20. He he plays well. He's a star, and uh, so during the World Cup he wasn't playing. And Amber was like, "Why is he not playing? Why is he not playing? Like you know they need him. You know, he's he's a forward, a striker. They need you know the score." You know, attacking player, and everybody's wondering why he's not playing. And then everybody's like, you know, Reyna and, and uh, the coach, they, like they played together for the national team. Like he should be like pushing to have this guy. And then it comes out that during training he didn't train hard. He had like an attitude, blah blah blah. And the coach decided not to play him. And then Claudio and his wife, or first his wife contacted the U.S. national team during the World Cup to say that she had dirt on the coach that 31 years ago he had kicked his girlfriend in college, who is now his wife. And they have uh, yeah, kids. yeah. This I uh, this headline I read. Yes, okay. It's just coming out now, and they got and the coach got fired. So then he came out and said that they they blackmailed me after he got released. He said that they blackmailed me that the Reynas. Both of them, even the dad also contacted them and said that they have information on him and why isn't their son playing? It's like it's like the ultimate soccer mom situation. 
Mm. Like this is kind of stuff that happens in like high schools and middle schools in the U.S. And it's unbelievable that they would like, especially a 20 year old kid who has, he's like one of the best talents the U.S. has. And and because, you know, he didn't, he didn't play that the parents want to totally sabotage his career and the U.S. national team. Yeah, I, I I can't comment. I mean, I I read the headline about the coach kicking his uh, um, his wife um, at some point, um, and um, yeah, I yeah I don't know why I I didn't uh, continue reading the the article, but um, yeah, I, I I hate all kinds of um, violence, especially those against uh, um, women, and I. Yeah, I, I didn't really want to read any more abusive information, and so I stayed away from it. But um, yeah, under the, I mean, those circumstances seem to be quite, um, I would say, unique in international football. Though we have had a few players who um, who have followed the advice of either their mums or their dads um, quite famously as well. Um, so I was actually reading about um, Rabio, Rabio. Yeah, 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 the French guy. No, no, the French guy, yeah. That his mom is like is the same way. Like she, she's his agent, and she, yeah. she like, uh, she had an issue with Manchester United because they wanted to sign him, but she wanted a certain amount of money and and mm. playing time. And then, because uh, then PSG, like, um, when PSG found out, Tuchel found out that his mother was talking to United, then Tuchel stopped playing them all together. And then she, was, <laughs> it's so funny, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know the the ins and outs of that. Um, he 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 had a problem with uh, Didier Deschamps in the previous World Cup in in 2018 when they won it in Russia. Um, he wanted apparently some kind of guarantee that he would start, and Deschamps was like, "Yeah, that's not going to happen. Look at the quality of players I've got. I've got Pogba. I've got Kante. Um, you know, I I can't just guarantee that." And so therefore he said, "Well, I'm not going to come then in that case." So yeah. I've heard. He's he's a bit of a he's a very good player, of course, but there is a sense of entitlement about him, which it doesn't work well in a team sport scenario, does it? No, but I mean, depends how good you are, I guess. Also, because if LeBron James ten years ago says, I'm, "I better get this and that," teams are going to do it. <laughs> Yeah, but basketball, again, is a little bit different as a sport. Um, I, w- I wouldn't want to necessarily compare. I mean, a- an individual player represents 20% of uh, the team in basketball, whereas in, in football, it's slightly less because there are so many more players. Um, uh, on no, the field, but, no, I agree. What's the next topic? Um, are you, you accelerating us on, Jeff? No, no, I, I mean, I, we can go on and on about. Yeah, no, no, that's fair enough. Don't worry, I, I, I'll do some uh, good editing later on. All right, so we both agree that uh, Pele, therefore, was was the man, um, and there's no argument. I'm not going to talk about any of the others. All right, um, but moving on from one sports uh, person to another. So this week, or was it last week? Um, Damar Hamlin collapsed um, in an American football game. Um, what, what's the story there? Uh, so supposedly he, he plays safety, so he plays defense and, uh, I'm pretty sure this is, yeah, he plays defense and guy caught the ball and then put his shoulder into his chest and it caused him to have cardiac arrest. So his heart stopped, stopped beating. Okay. So this isn't 
exactly what happened to Christian Eriksen. This this was because um, Eriksen nobody touched Eriksen. He collapsed. But that this what you're saying is this guy. He was actually his heart was hit. With yeah, kind of like it. I mean, I've seen this happen uh, when I was in high school. Like lacrosse player got hit. You know what lacrosse is, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, got hit uh, in the chest with a shot that's oh. traveling like about 80 miles an hour. Yeah. And it hit him when his heart was like beating, like an off beat or something. So it threw the heartbeat off and it caused him to go into like a cardiac arrest. Okay. And then they had, luckily, they had like the shock things at the field and they shocked him back to life. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's, this, this dude, he's, he actually died on the field. And then they brought him back to life, shocked his heart back to beating. And then Hamlin, you mean? Hamlin, yeah. And then uh, he's in critical condition right now, but they said he's improving. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully that continues. I mean, Christian Eriksen apparently was also dead for a few minutes. Um, and then they resuscitated him. And, and uh, yeah, as you know, uh, four years later, he's playing professional football um, in the Premier League. So. Um, and the World Cup. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, he he returned um, last at the beginning of last season because Inter, his team at the time when he had his heart attack uh, in Italy, if you have a, a questionable heart condition, you're not allowed to play. Um, so I remember when I was when I played in Italy, even amateur football, um, you you could only play 30 minutes if it's a, an adults league because um, they they feel that if if you play a 45 minute half. Um, there's more chance of people suffering from heart attacks because people play football well into their 40s and 50s. Uh, and so when I first turned up in Italy, like uh, the, the referee blew the whistle after half an hour when I was like 31. And I'm thinking, one minute, what's going on here? Um, and uh, yeah, I was told that they only have uh, 30 minute halves because they're worried about heart attacks. So Italy is very strict with regards to this um, this particular health policy that they have. So Christian Eriksen was not allowed to play in Serie A. And then he was welcomed back at the beginning of last season to play for Brentford. He had a great season. Um, and then at the beginning of this season, he signed for United. So, yeah, I guess he was uh, available for the World Cup. Yeah, he played for Denmark. Yep, yep. Uh, very good player, very good team. Um, so, OK, hopefully then um, you know, Denmark Hamlin will make a similar recovery. But do they have... I know that the um, American football has been heavily criticised in the past for its lack of, um, how should I say, um, healthcare shall, you know, is perhaps the best way to look at it. So lots of um, head injuries to players, lots of other kinds of muscular injuries, and also the way um, players after retiring suffer from significant uh, traumas, uh, head traumas, and so on. Um, is the is the NFL becoming stricter with regards to its healthcare of the players? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, there's only so much you can really do with the NFL, and the I mean, it's, they've they've changed the rules every year uh, to stop to kind of stop this type of. Um, injuries and but uh it's always going to be a con you know a full contact sport and they're traveling at a high rate of speed and big collisions mm. i think the biggest issue they have is uh like the cts or whatever cte um 
is caused by like uh, people being uh, hit in the head for years, you know, mm. that's that's the big problem. Yeah, yeah, but also you know, landing on their heads when they they do these crazy leaps for touchdowns and uh, and you go for the knee and then obviously the people land on their heads and their shoulders and their backs um, when they sort of flip over. So um, it, yeah, in general, it's it's just a really aggressive sport, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And this the amount of people like uh, the amount of ACLs. It's really weird because like we. I was talking to somebody about it. Like, you look at soccer, like, they're always cutting on their legs, on their feet, and they never – you don't hear so many ACL injuries, but, like, in football, it's like, it's like one ACL injury per game. Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. This is the knee, right, we're talking about? Yeah, it's like the, yeah. the, the ligament that connects the knee. It's like – it yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know why. There, there are some injuries which are – you're quite common to specific sports um but um yeah even though when there are other sports when there are sort of similar levels of application i don't know is it because um, american football players generally speaking are a bit bulkier up top um and, and their knees have a lot more pressure they've got a lot more weight to carry then they also have to wear a lot more gear uh, as in helmets and all the padding and stuff it's, it's just it adds extra weight doesn't it yeah and they they don't play on like so much real grass anymore they play more on uh astroturf but it's kind of turf that kind of it's not probably as responsive Mm. and they're a lot bigger too so more weight to carry essentially puts more pressure on them yeah yeah okay well all the best to uh you know damar hamlin then um Earlier today, you sent me uh, an interesting article from, I think it was the Washington Post, um, talking about some statistics with regards to prison population. Um, yeah, do you want to go through um, what, what some of these statistics are saying? Yeah, let's do it. Do you have the article? I do. I do indeed. Um, give me a moment. I shall fire it up. So basically... Um, what the article says at the beginning is that um, one in seven U.S. prisoners is serving life and two thirds of those are people of color. I do a lot of like reading about like prison and crime and like, I studied uh, criminal justice in college and stuff. And I've always had like an interest in true crime and how do people get to this point, you know, of spending their life in prison for taking someone else's life you know and it's just interesting how you know mentally you get to this point right yeah um but i would go from using like strain theory you know this terminology Mm -hmm. and i think you know and especially in the u.s in the black community um with you know the whole we can go on for days about different things like in neighborhoods and education and you know lack of resources that people are um have to choose other ways other means to put food on the table to make money and get by that uh being involved in that type of criminality activity, um uh really you know ends up putting more of these people in jail um but just think about like 200,000 people are serving life sentences 
Yeah, and um, which is more than the entire prison population in 1970, uh, but also on of those people who were serving life, 30% um, are at least 55 years old. So I, mean, I don't know at what age these people, generally speaking, um, committed their crimes. But if you are, if you, I suppose, take some kind of uh, an average and say, well, these people have been there for at least I don't know, 20 odd years, um, then you're talking about a criminal justice system um, which exhibited inequality in the way that they prosecuted people of color over others, shall we say, um, over a sustained period of time. Uh, so clearly there is an issue in how different communities are dealt with within the US uh, justice system. Yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, there's a huge issue with, in, with the justice system in the US. I mean, but also you have to think based off population and the access to guns um like i would love to see how many people are in murder from gun violence versus knife violence versus uh vehicular homicide or strangling or something like that you know yeah i mean i mean obviously we would then be going into quite morbid territory with regards to these things i i i recall but unfortunately that's the subject that we're in um I recall reading on Twitter a very interesting idea from um, one lady contributor. She said that, um, why is it that uh, guns don't have the same kind of treatment that all other products in, you know, essentially in the US are treated in that um, if you're going to carry uh, a gun in, in the USA, you should have insurance for it. Um, and the insurance should be um, of a certain value to cover for uh, certain kinds of eventualities. And her opinion was such that if people were forced to have insurance to be able to have the permit, like, for example, driving a car, um, this would also reduce the number of people who decided to carry because of the vast cost uh, involved in having it. Yeah, there's plenty of states that have carry. Uh, you need permits and blah, blah, blah. But people still access guns. Like, and the people who are committing the crimes are using illegal guns and not non-permitted guns. Okay, so therefore, it's uh, the the question of insurance wouldn't necessarily make no. any difference for those kinds of crimes, especially when you have like ten thousand, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of guns more than people. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, this is an interesting statistic, isn't it? Because I think that I mean the USA yeah, millions, has... millions of guns running, you know, floating around, and uh, it's not hard to access them. So like the people who are committing the crimes, most of them probably aren't the guns aren't legal i mean or they live in a state where you can have a gun doesn't matter if it's registered or not i mean like now in georgia and texas i think as well you can just carry a gun on you without a license as long as you're not a convicted felon okay they just passed this law it just went into effect like last week or something so nice. on the first yeah so you can uh and definitely i know in georgia you can carry it on you uh, it can't be it has to be covered, I think, but you can carry it on you and not have to ha not have a training or any license or anything. That's almost like, I mean, going back to, you know, the status as it was in the Civil War, because uh, in those days in the South, black people were not allowed to carry weapons. Um, and nowadays, if you think that, you know, because of the injustices of the, uh, the system, uh, you know, people of color are far more likely uh, to be found guilty of a crime. And so therefore, what what the 
the numbers come down to is that um, black people are less likely to be allowed legally to carry weapons, even in areas where um, carrying a weapon doesn't require a permit. Correct. Correct. And there, and I would say like most of them are trying to protect. Like I don't know. It's like it's such a tough situation with, with the gun stuff. I mean, we're talking about people in prison, but I, and, like the gun talk can be a whole other discussion, which they, we're not going to get an answer to because, like I said, um, there's more guns than people. Um, if you want to, I think most people would want to stop more of the mass shootings, which are used like these uh assault rifles and bigger mm. guns then i think that can be stopped you know for sure or they can put into legislation but people getting you know handguns and stuff it's just i mean they're just not hard to find in the u.s really yeah i mean as you said um yeah there's more than 300 million uh guns uh in circulation in the USA, and that is such a worrying statistic. I mean, when people talk about you turn 18, you can go buy them at a Walmart. You know what I mean? Like it's not. Yeah, I remember seeing this on a wall in a supermarket when I went when I first went to Florida in back in uh, 1989, and you know, for me it was horrific. You know, <laughs> we'd we'd go shopping, um, and, and you walk into a store, and on the one side they're selling clothing um, for kids. And on the other side, they've got these huge weapons on the wall. Okay, fair enough, they're locked away. Um, but it still leaves an impression. I mean, I can still remember it. And I was only 12. Look at this, look at this stat. Uh, in the UK, there are 8,000 people in prison serving life sentences. Mm. It's twice, it's, it's, it's the same, it's more than France and Germany and Italy combined. The USA, you mean? No, UK. Oh, okay. All right. The UK has more people serving life sentences than France, Germany, Italy combined. And it's and it's only eight thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, the the UK has a population of I think it's sixty five million. So if you say multiply that by five um, to have more or less the number of the same population that you've got in the USA, and the USA has then two hundred three thousand people serving life sentences. So eight times five is forty. So you still have only a quarter of the number on percentages uh, of people serving life sentences in the UK. I think mainly because they don't have access to the kinds of weapons that will cause the kind of harm that is possible in the USA. Um, you know, if, if maybe the intent is there to, to kill someone, but if you don't actually succeed, then you are charged with, you know, attempted murder as opposed to murder. And so therefore the sentence is obviously a lot less. Uh, and, and that would probably be the, the main reason why there is such a, a difference in the in the numbers. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what I was saying. Um, just the access to guns and how how quick and easy it is to make that mistake. You know what I mean? Yeah, if you're crazy. Yeah, if you're mad and you've got something next to you or, you know, by by your side, um, then the chances are that this will be used. Um, uh, You know, I I can't see any circumstances under which I I would attempt to to kill somebody. Um, But I'm sitting here now very safe in my home, quite rational, quite calm, um, quite pleased to be speaking to my buddy. So therefore, I'm not really in that psychological situation where this may be 
um, a, a course of action that I could make a decision on. But if I'm really pissed off with something um, and you know there's a gun sitting in my drawer, who knows what could happen? Um, yeah, I don't know. Guns are a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I was talking to my cousin about they live in Georgia and they were saying he was saying, like, if you go out of your house one day and you got a pocket full of money, then you're probably going to go spend it. If you go out of your house with a basketball, you're probably going to go try to play basketball. You know what I mean? This what's in your pocket. Mm. Uh, if you go out with, you know, a bottle of booze, you're probably going to go have some, you know, get drunk. You know what I mean? But if you go outside with a gun, what kind of mentality is that bringing into your mind that mm. you have something that can take someone's life that's very aggressive object? Um, and I don't know if you ever held or shot a gun. Like, it's a crazy feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, the, I've held a real gun. It was a 400-year-old dueling pistol, though. So, therefore, I don't think that counts. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad, we would go down to my grandmother's, and she lived down in, like, the country. And... I mean, my dad always had guns, and he would. I was. I I first shot a nine millimeter when I was like maybe twelve or something. Mm. He was like, just shooting into the woods, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> you know, and he and he also told me like, you know, if there, someone's ever shooting at you with a nine millimeter, uh, weave when you run because they're very hard to aim with. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. someone telling a twelve year old that? Yeah, r- rather not, to be honest. But um, I mean, this is the thing I was I was going to say earlier. You know, if- <laughs> of like, the, and this is like, I mean, we're talking. Let's see, tw- this is a long time. But this is like al- almost in the um, early two thousands. Mm. You know, and this is just like when my dad passed away, I had to go clean out his house, and he had like five or six guns in his house, shotguns. Yeah. And uh, and you guys are- kind of grew up down on a farm and stuff, and it was just uh, you just always had guns, guns. You know what I mean? It's just mm. something. And a lot of his patients were were farmers, and they would sell these really fancy shotguns to him and stuff. So he would like collect them a bit. Yeah, and, and your family are Democrats, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. But uh, but yeah, like what I'm saying is, so if we go back to this incarceration thing. It's amazing. Um, so I guess like probably number one leader is access to the guns, but also you got to think about what's going on in society. That was it. Was it half of them or two thirds of them are black or African American? Mm. Yeah. So obviously it's coming down to like what's going on in their communities and the situation that they're put in. That they're you know I have to go back to like the strain theory that you know they're under this this uh stress and issues with financially econ- you know or economically socially and they are trying to find other ways to get out and then when you put yourself in those those uh those ways to get make money things happen that you know it's just not and retaliation happens and anger has, happens and then people get end up in jail you know like most i, I guarantee a lot of them is probably like armed robbery mm. a lot of them um because I watch a lot of crime shows and a lot of people, are, they go into uh, they need money or one guy, he, he was on death row. This is a, was a white guy and he said that he had uh, he had a family and everything, but he's, he, he got a drug addiction and his family didn't really know 
and he had to pay rent, but the money was always gone because he was spending all on drugs. But his wife and kids, no one knew. I mean, he was acting strange. They said, are you okay? Okay, blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, one day I went out and I said, uh, I, need to, I need to pay the rent. And I said, and I said how am I going to? And someone said, you know, you, I, I, when I pay the rent, I use that ski mask or whatever, you know. And the guy went out and he went to a place that he knew the guy working. And he was like, I know this guy. I can just rob him. He won't say anything. And then he said he went in there and robbed him. And he's like, when he realized that he had committed the crime and that the guy knew him, he's like, this guy can identify me within an hour or, you know, or tell somebody as soon as I leave. He, I was here. So he said, I had to kill him. You know, and he's like, I never thought about killing anybody. I never was in a situation where I was being shot at or, or a fight was breaking out. And he's like, I just was desperate to pay my rent for my family. And I ended up getting life in, or he's on death, uh, death row mm. like that. Or was like, I need to pay the rent. And he said, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, clearly the problem there is the, the drug habit um, and and access to uh, weapons to be able to carry out such a uh, such an act but i mean w when i think about countries that i would like to visit now i, I have a clear I, i'm afraid of flying now i didn't used to be but i am now so therefore it's it's much easier for me to make these plans so i don't i there's no way i would fly um out of um out of europe um but if i were to, to present myself with a list of countries to visit on the basis of okay a having a good time um, but also, where would I feel safe taking my family? Um, the USA would not figure high on that list um, because, you know, o over the last few years, you know, my my kids wouldn't go to school in the USA on holiday. But I mean, okay, school mass shootings in schools almost one a week. Um, but on top of that, shopping centers, grocery stores, malls, cinemas, nightclubs. You know, is there any place which is not targeted in the USA by somebody who goes, you know, crazy and decides to start killing innocent people in the public? You know, anything can happen anywhere in the USA. And um, it's frightening because potentially everyone has a gun. That's true, man. Because, I mean, like I, I think I've told you this before. When I go back to the US, I go, if I go to Atlanta, which probably averages like a, one shooting a day or more, um, I don't go out, and my family doesn't go out, and they go out because they, they're 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 afraid to get shot. It's like you just don't go out anymore. Yeah, I mean that's, that's crazy. Happening everywhere, you know, and like I was reading that Chicago had like last year. Had 722 murders. There's two murders a day or something. Yeah, I mean it's, it's one it's city. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. It's um, it, a friend of mine uh, was telling me last week about uh, one of the first times that he he went to South Africa, um, and he he was out and uh, he decided he was drunk and he decided to walk home. Um, and a police cruiser stopped by and, and the policeman came out and said, what are you doing, man? And, and, and because, you know, they realized this guy's got to be a tourist. Um, and he said, yeah, I'm walking home. And they said, get a, get a cab. And the guy said, yeah, I don't want to get a cab. Um, and so the police basically put him in, in the back and drove him home. 
And they said to him, you know, if you ever go out again in public after a certain time, you get a cab home or you stay where you are because yeah. otherwise you're not going to make it home. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, these kinds of stories are quite horrifying. Yeah, but I mean, I think also that's the risk of traveling is, uh, you know, being in an uncomfortable situation. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think risking death uh, is, is is part of it. But yeah. I mean, like, you know, when you travel to other places, you know, things aren't safe and uncertainty. But I think in the U.S., the odds of you being, I think it's like, I think you have a higher chance to be involved in a mass shooting than hit by lightning. Yeah, um, which is, you know, something that obviously would figure quite highly in my planning. Um, I I, I wouldn't now want to go back to the US. I've been to the USA, I think, all in all about five times. Um, I'm I'm not going to rush back, Um, you know, as beautiful a country as it is, um, it's kind of ruined by some of the people there, um, which, okay, w- w- I'm sure we'll talk about prison populations again in the future, but we're already uh, way beyond our, our mark. But so b- before we, we, we sort of close up for this sort of first episode in this little series of ours, um, Republicans can't seem to get it together, can they, with regards to um, electing a, a Speaker of the House? No, they can't. And I think it's more... They're just not in the interest of the people. And a lot of politicians um, aren't, unfortunately. I'm not saying every politician isn't, but especially in like some of these Republican, the Republican Party, I just think like that just the interest of the people isn't there. And now it's like become a total joke um, that they couldn't be, you know, select a speaker. They're bringing in pizzas and they had children there and they're yawning and sleeping and it's just like what what is going on like what really is going on like what do you what what is your your purpose is to serve the people you know mm. and get and put these egos and everything out of the way and and get the government running and you know people are struggling to make ends meet and you guys are in here fighting because of you know political views or just you know like children yeah, I read one Twitter commenter say that um, for a lot of politicians nowadays, getting the job as a senator or a representative, it's no longer about representing the people, as you say, because the money that they get, that's just like a, a, a little bonus. What they're really there for is the kind of business interests which they can promote through their position um, in in those political seats and and they get paid lots and lots of money by these business interests who tell them vote in this way and that's essentially what it is so when they become a representative of the people what they're actually doing is taking on a very cushy line of business um, which can be quite financially rewarding for them and that's all they care about yeah it's, it's very true like it's just uh lobbying is everything you know, to get uh, that's why you're never going to get these gun laws to change because, um, you know, these people are put into office uh, to support the NRA or whatever, National Rifle Association, and and the sell of arms. You know, because they want to they make money off this. So that's why you'll never get these uh, these 
assault rifle and firearm uh, laws in in place because of this, you know. But I mean, that's but that's because the people don't want to change it. I mean, if enough people wanted to change firearms laws, they would elect yeah, but Democrats. Ha- yeah, but how many people um, don't know what what they represent? I mean, even Democrats are working on certain some things. They're not all. They're not. They're not like the ones aren't getting money either. Yeah, um, of course. The arms trade is huge business for the USA, and so therefore, th- this is also why I've I've commented, you know, repeatedly in the past. I, I'm not, I don't support the Democrats um, just because they are a little, a little bit less, um, how should I say, <laughs> um, hateful of uh, collective uh, community politics than the Republicans. Um, for me, they're both bad, um, and, and I think a two-party system is not the right way of running a, a democracy. I, I, I think that there's just simply not enough um, option uh, for people to be able to make the choices that they would like to choose. Um, you know, on top of that, US politics is so restrictive. Uh, I was listening to some of the statements from the FTC recently with regards to the um, acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft. Um, and that, that, you know, the FTC comes out and says, yeah, we are here to make sure that, um, you know, there are equal opportunities for people who want to get into the market. And so therefore, we want to make sure that one company doesn't have a hugely dominant presence within a single sector. OK, why don't we apply those principles to um, elections then? You know, um, can simply anybody turn up and expect to be elected into the House of Representatives? It's not possible. You need to have millions and millions of dollars in backing to be able to be elected, to simply run a campaign. Otherwise, nobody knows about you. So you've got, on the one hand, absolute protectionism with regards to the the, the main elements of the American system. Um, And on the other hand, this claim that we're we're here to to basically keep everybody happy. Um, Bullshit. (laughs) Sorry, sorry to say it, Chris, but I mean, that's no, I mean, but I wouldn't say to I mean, the, the Tories aren't doing so great either. Good, good. Get rid of them. Uh, it's, it, it, you know, you know, the, the, the campaign uh, on Twitter is enough is enough. The Tories have stolen so much from the people. That's uh, my son playing Fortnite in the background. Um, the people have stolen so much from the people, um, the Tories, that uh um, it's unbelievable that they continue to be re-elected. Uh, and, but I mean, I have to also say, yeah, I don't think Keir Starmer is the solution. Um, he, 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 to me, smacks of a Tony Blair star character. Um, and for me, Tony Blair is a war criminal. So, yeah, not the best person to try yeah. to follow. I'm a fan of Tony Blair. Huh? No, not, not a fan of Tony Blair. I, I get so put off. Um, I, I, I actually get angry when Tony Blair says something that I sort of you know, principally agree with. Um, uh, I just hate it. It gets on my nerves. Something chronic. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear his opinion. Um, uh, he's a hateful person for me. British politics. Yeah, I think I, I mean, like sometimes I uh, have a. I think that people or the younger generation coming up won't be so politically sided with like Democrats and Republicans and maybe they'll start to see things for what they are or what or their own opinion. Um, 
but it's just hard when you're just bred to pick a side as a kid, you know. And also, like, you know, in the U.S., it's like people won't, some people won't date Republicans. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what I mean? Like, like, oh, you're a Democrat? Like, no, no, no. Not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've... Um... Then, you, then you're just breeding, you know, generations of this stuff. That's the hard part, because, you know, like, if if you won't even... You can't put aside your politics for love. Um, it's it's just a uh, it's a hard battle. <laughs> if, if love can't if love can't win with politics, then what do you what can you do? Zach? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- there's definitely um, a problem with tolerance levels now in in politics, especially in um, clearly in the USA, but also in the UK. Um, you know, for example, Brexit has broken up many many families. Lots of relatives no longer speak to one another uh, on the basis of Brexit. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not necessarily saying that people have to change that because you know, I, I can I can understand to a certain extent. Um, but we need to try to beyond, go beyond that. We need to try to find a, a means of communicating with, with people. But it's not always possible. Um, and, and so sometimes you've got to say, you know, what? OK, I, I'm not going to do it. You know, the, these people, it's not just one policy or another policy. It's th- their entire approach to, to, to humans, their entire approach to communities. Um, I can't handle that. Um, and, and this is where, um, you know, for me, the Republicans fall short because there is s- such um, a smell of white supremacy about so much of what the Republican Party stands for at the moment. Um, that it, it's beyond distasteful. Uh, you know, I don't like necessarily the Democratic Party uh, to any great extent either. If you look at some of the corrupt members of them, of, of their leadership in the past. Um, but at the moment. Well, the Republicans are just pure toxicity for me. Yeah, as this. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you, what you're saying. It feels like they just are anti anything. And now, you know, you know post Trump era, hopefully stays mm-hmm. like that. Um, it just magnified the the hate and the separation from it, you know. Yeah. All right. Cool. All right. But thank you very much, man. Um, this has gone on for a lot longer than we planned. So, um, yeah, I'll get uh, I'll get handy with the scissors on doing some editing. Um, yeah. Thank you for your time, Chris. It's always good to chat with you. And uh, yeah, I'll see you on Sunday at the game, man. Cheers. Take care, bud. Two. And a mic.